You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I feel like who art ed? I'm trying to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted Weekly Art History for All Ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today my guest is actually the subject of last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend go back and listen to the episode about Tom Does Longchamp. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I am I am like so excited to be talking to you just because you and I have actually corresponded a little bit for like a year now through emails and stuff. This is our first time actually talking in sync. And I make it no secret. I absolutely love your work. I am like on a mission to, you know, teach other fellow art teachers about how awesome your marker drawings are. And, and you know, 20 years from now, there's going to be a generation of of people collecting your work. I know you are going to be in the museums, if I can do anything about it. Wow, Kyle, thank you. I'm <laughs> a little bit overwhelmed by that statement, but I, I, I mean, I appreciate you championing my work and in sharing the process with other people because, yeah, it's it's sometimes you know people that have even followed me for years and followed my Instagram uh, are suddenly like, wait, you use your fingertips <laughs> for these, and I'm like, yeah i i talk about it once in a while but it's not like something i hammer home every time i post to something you know so it's like but yeah anyways but thank you appreciate that i just always love when i see something that catches me a little bit by surprise but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a cheap gimmick it feels like it was just a clever way of using the material to get a different effect you know and you found a way to bring texture to a marker and i love that i mean it looks and feels like a painting or a pastel drawing and yet it's marker i think that's really cool and i i love the drawings and i am going to be you know talking about it probably for the next 20 years. So, <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah. And I really appreciate that you were willing to come on because I do something a little bit different. I didn't bring you on to talk about your work. I brought you on to talk about another artist. Today, we're going to be talking about Bob Ross because you said he was one of the influences on you growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. I spent a lot of time uh, watching him on TV when I was a kid. Yeah. It was one of those, you know, the, was it, it was channel nine where I lived. And, uh, I remember just 
flipping through the channels and sometimes it'd be Mr. Rogers, sometimes it was Bob Ross, you know, just those those childhood uh, TV personalities, yeah. It's interesting that, like, Mr. Rogers is the other one you pull up because the two of them are just, like, the most calming, soothing male figures I can remember from, you know, television personalities on, uh, I guess, both probably public television, too. Um, But, yeah, Bob Ross, I think... You're not the only one. He's been influencing generations and still continues to inspire people today. So I guess let's get into it. His early life, Bob Ross was born October 29th, 1942 in Daytona Beach, Florida. So we've got an episode about Florida Man here. And I love this. I did not realize this till I started doing research and watched the documentary and all of that. He didn't start off as an artist going to art school or anything like that. He actually enlisted in the military. He was in the Air Force, like starting from the age 18. And he spent like a full career, 20 years. Uh, He, I guess, was a medical records technician. I saw something where he said basically he spent all that time in the military yelling at people about having to fix things and get it straightened out and all of that. And he said when he got out of there, he just wanted to adopt a totally different tone. He didn't want to be so harsh and yelling at people about everything. Um, yeah, it, th- this part of his life always inspires me because everybody who's interested in making art, even if they're not a designated artist, will struggle with the fact that they have to do the things they have to do like go to your a regular job or something that's completely the opposite direction. But this, it sh- proves that sometimes the things that you don't, you're not excited about push you towards something that you are and eventually you'll get there, you know? Yeah. He took on some odd jobs. Like I guess one of the, the things I saw, he was, he was working as a bartender to make a little extra money on the side, and he would paint landscapes that he saw and kind of sell those. But he, he didn't have a lot of like formal training in art. Towards the end of that time, um, while he's in Alaska, he was in a bar and saw a PBS television show come on and it was Bill Alexander with the magic of painting or the magic of oil painting. And this really inspired Bob because he said that he had been looking for art teachers, you know, and classes that could teach him technique. And I'm, I'm sure, well, I guess I shouldn't make assumptions. I'm guessing your training may have been similar to mine. Like when I went to art school, a lot of the talk was more about like concepts. What are you addressing? How do you compose it? It wasn't a ton of specific technique. You almost had to seek that out. Like I remember I would talk to different teachers and just be like, I am not really getting how to do X, Y, and Z. Like, how thin do I need to get the oil paint to be able to flow and get it to drip in this way? You know, whatever it might be, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I relate with that, too, in my experience, uh, where the teachers were trying to create uh, potential teachers and potential directors and potential, like, people that could uh, direct ideas. And uh, going really deep into one process I mean, sometimes that was sort of like, well, we don't have time for that. 
Oh, I need yeah. to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, it was like it was very. I would say art since the 20th century has been so conceptually driven. It's gotten away from like the atelier system, like the apprenticeships that people had, you know, in the, the, you know, Renaissance on where people were, you know, going to study in an artist studio and they would go from the basic levels of like, I'm grinding up the stones to make the pigment and mix the paints. And then I'm doing like the washes and then I'm priming and stretching canvases or whatever. Um, up until they got to that point of mastery where they could execute their own paintings, you know, studying under a quote unquote master artist. You know, when we, when we saw the shift towards, I would, I would put it more like, mid to late 19th century as we went towards like the impressionists and those people who were so direct and more about the ideas that they were capturing instead of the techniques mm-hmm. art school really fundamentally changed and i think bob ross was not super on board with that he wanted to just learn how to paint and he found that in bill alexander who had a PBS television show just like Bob Ross did and taught classes just like Bob Ross did. In fact, he taught Bob Ross and, you know, he learned a lot from that process. And I guess after he, after he finished and retired from the military, Bob Ross actually worked for a while as a traveling salesman for Bill Alexander in his paint company. And then he was teaching classes, teaching the Alexander method, painting, you know, Primavera wet on wet, um, that, that sort of quick study method before he got his own show and his own break. That's a, a wild story. I mean, it's, I feel like when you have a television show, it's about not just that you can paint, it's you're a personality. You're a person that likes to entertain and display. And, um, man, it just, I know that there were, I mean, when he just took Bill Alexander's methods and then ran with them. I mean, that's exciting because we all learn from each other, but it seemed a little bit intense too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it, it started off, I think more friendly because in the early days, like I said, Bob Ross was teaching a sort of Bill Alexander workshop and he taught someone who was really disappointed that she couldn't learn from Bill Alexander. Bill Alexander was basically retiring and this woman was told like, Oh, you can take this, this class down in Florida from this other guy who teaches the same method. And she believed in, in Bob Ross to the point that she like, I guess at one point mortgaged her house to pay for stuff like, you know, the first printing of the first book of the joy of painting with Bob Ross. And during that time, he struggled quite a bit to get himself off the ground. Like, you know, that iconic look of the curly hair and everything. He actually had straight hair by nature. He, he developed that hairstyle because he thought like, well, if I get a perm, I will like never have to to cut my hair and I can save so much money. And so his look was born essentially out of 
looking for ways to cut corners and save every dime that he could because I guess he did not have enough money to be able to afford to go to the barber on a regular basis. Um, which kind of tells you a lot about like his financial situation and the shoestring budget, but he believed in what he was doing and he wanted to paint and he wanted to spread that to others. And so he starts teaching these classes and as he was starting to teach his own classes, because this was before he had the PBS show, nobody showed up. Nobody wanted to take his classes. So he would do these free demonstrations in a mall and hope that people would sign up for his classes a few days later and things like that. There's a story I heard that at one of these times, he was teaching class in like the Washington, D.C. area is what I read. And just one person showed up. And everyone who's with with Bob tells him, oh, you know, we're not doing this whole thing for just one person. Just cancel it. And Bob said, no, this guy showed up. I'm going to teach him. By the end of the class, the guy was so just impressed that he said, look, I'm a businessman. I am going to invest in your company. I can put up a million dollars, but you got to sign over 40% of everything you make from this venture. He turned him down. I, I I don't know how a guy who can't afford haircuts turns down an offer of a million dollars, but he did. He had he had some courage to go out traveling the country on this faith that something will pan out. And so then he he actually created the joy of painting in the early 1980s and I didn't realize this. It was shot in like the living room of a house, the PBS station in like Muncie, Indiana, where he was based out of for this. And that's starting the second season on. I think the first season was filmed somewhere else. Like it might have been the D.C. area. And it was kind of a flop. It was not well received. And the first season aired once and never again. But then they went looking for another place. And that's where he landed in Indiana. And I guess the station was headquartered in a house, an old house. And so they they had a studio in what would have been like the living room. And that's where that's where he filmed all of those, you know, the classic black backdrop, him with the easel, three camera setup was all in what appears to be like just a normal Midwestern living room. Some of those early episodes are kind of jarring. Have you watched the, those those really early ones? Like with they, some of them have constant like circus music in them. <laughs> yes, I was just like, why, why is this music here? Because <laughs> he hadn't like dialed the the uh, the recipe down for the episodes yet. Oh my gosh, it's like, yeah. and I, uh. I, I think that's true. But I think you know, there's something interesting about the way you refer to it, the recipe for those episodes. It was very carefully constructed. As much as he seems so mellow and laid back about everything, when when you look at it, there's a very clear and I would say rigid structure to it. Like he's got that tight setup. He's got the black background, which was actually deliberate. 
the simplicity of that background, they said they considered different set designs and they landed on that essentially like empty space, close up, him and the easel, nothing else, to give it a sense of sort of intimacy. And he's speaking and he said he's always envisioning just one person he's speaking to. He wanted it to to feel like a conversation with a close friend or a family member and not you know, public speaking. Because you know how your voice, like your voice and and your inflection, everything is different when you're talking to a large crowd compared to when you're talking to an individual. Yeah. He's got a really interesting combination of like um, strategy, strategic thinking, and uh, like sensitivity to people and, well, and animals, I guess. But uh, like- It's it's really kind of uh, seems like a rare combo, like where you know you're really strategizing hard, but also all about the one person all the time, you know. And I think Uh, that's a winning combination. I mean, you know that that person who can make a connection with others, and like you said, the soft spot for animals. Um, I can't believe I didn't even mention this. Growing up, he said he had like every kind of pet that you could imagine. He um, he grew up with a bunch of different small animals and and taking them in because from what I understand reading between the lines it seems like he grew up without a, a lot of toys and other stuff like he went out seeking connections and fun in nature and and playing with animals and stuff like that because he didn't have a whole lot else um his father I, I think was a he was a a carpenter and you know trained bob a little bit in in that um and actually that's how a lot of people don't know this bob ross lost the the tip of his index finger when he was young in a um an accident with a saw uh you don't see it too often because it was on his hand that was always holding the the palette but when they have close-ups of of the palette sometimes if you look carefully you can see he's missing the tip of his index finger I I forgot that his dad was a a carpenter. My my dad's a carpenter too. Oh, so really? like it yeah, definitely teaches you a lot uh, as, uh, about practicality and and about people. Because if you're a carpenter, sometimes I mean, my dad was a front a public facing one, like he, not just in a cabinet shop, but he would go and work at people's houses, and you gotta solve problems and be nice to people and. <laughs> And I think that's a really important skill. And I think that's probably why he had the appeal that he did. Because I think what's most interesting is even though Bob Ross was teaching Bill Alexander's method, I mean, almost identical, right? The delivery was 180 degrees difference. Um, Bill Alexander was a very serious, I would say stern person teaching this method. And it was, it was, you know, it was the same techniques, but it was intimidating. You know, it, it felt like he was yelling at you about painting the right way. And he also painted outside, which was strange. Well, I don't know if every episode was outside, but, but the ones I saw, he's just like uh, on the grass next to a forest 
and the winds blowing and it 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 felt like chaotic to me watching it. I'm just like, uh, like why he's outside and it felt kind of too far away and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And tonally, like I said, it was almost as far apart as you could get, except the technique was the same. And, you know, Bill Alexander, I, I guess the outside in nature makes sense if you're thinking we're painting landscapes, we're painting from observation, look at this beautiful scene. But Bob Ross had a different idea, like I said, about that intimacy, that connection between him and one person on the other end who's watching this and one person who's learning from it. And he wanted it to have that that connection and an appeal that would last through the ages. So as I said, everything about it was very thoughtfully constructed. He would dress in that same like blue button down because he, he said he wanted his wardrobe to be timeless. He wanted it to hold up and not seem too dated, which is funny when you look at his hairstyle. I guess he hated that hairstyle. He, he wished he could get rid of it, but um, very shortly after he got started, his his partners were like, "We built we built the trademark on this. Like, this is your logo, this is your signature. We can't get rid of this." And so, I, I think it grew on him over time. But I think that was probably the one bit about his look and his aesthetic that he probably regretted, at least in the early days. I gotta say. I liked it. I like the wonkiness of his hair. You know, it just, it felt like it was the kind of person who does just let it all hang out and you can relate to it. You know, he's this oddball that's on my screen and doing amazing things with the paint. And to me, it just made it a little bit more human and endearing than if he'd had like the military crew cut. Absolutely. I mean, it made him stick out and easily representable, <laughs> like the way that uh, the parodies and the just in Halloween costumes have popped up because it's just all you need is a palette and a, a afro wig and some a paintbrush, and then you can. It, everyone knows he's iconic. You know, yeah, he's got that personal brand going. Yeah, yeah, and on the topic of that personal brand. Um, he did build a brand beyond the the shows. I guess I've seen he really didn't make much of any money directly off his own art. Like he wasn't he wasn't getting big bucks from public television. I know most people think public TV is what makes a a billionaire tycoon, but actually he didn't make much of any money there. And the paintings he made each episode. Uh, he would give those to public television stations, donating them so they could sell them and make make a bit of money for their annual fundraisers. So really where he made his living was off of, you know, the classes and workshops, um, the books. Eventually there were um, the Bob Ross line of art materials. He's selling all of that stuff. The The joy of painting the television show was basically just a commercial for all the other products and services that he had that he could sell people if they wanted to learn his method and practice and all of that. And it was highly successful, and that's where 
the rift with him and Bill Alexander came in because Bill Alexander felt betrayed. I mean, Bill Alexander actually in the early days recorded uh, videos and commercials saying like, I'm passing the torch to my student, Bob Ross, and, you know, so celebratory of that. But then as Bob got into the same business of the classes and the supplies and, and all of that, they became competitors. And, yeah. you know, Bob actually early on was showing a lot of gratitude, thanking Bill Alexander for teaching him. And then in later interviews, he kind of just stopped mentioning him and said, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to promote my competitor, which on the one level I get. But if I'm Bill Alexander, I also get why that's really hurtful. Yeah, I wonder how what his internal there's no way to know this but what his internal experience was after that uh, separation like because it seems like he he started getting more business backup as far as strategy and like the cutthroat <laughs> business stuff because it didn't seem like he was very cutthroat he was probably competitive i would assume uh but um but yeah it seemed like he just i wonder if it was painful for him uh internally to kind of just give uh bill alexander the cold shoulder later on you know probably i would hope so <laughs> i i imagine it probably was and i imagine and this is pure speculation but yeah. i imagine it was difficult for him because in so many other aspects bob ross seemed like he was genuinely a cool guy yeah. um you know all the all the interviewers all the interviews I've come across of, you know, friends and other ones talking about Bob Ross, they talked about how gentle and how kind and how sweet and how loving he was. When you think about how much he did, like, I mean, he made literally thousands of paintings that he gave away to public television stations so they could auction off. And, you know, he could have sold those, especially as he got bigger and bigger. I'm sure he could have made a decent amount of money off that. And But he would give it away. I think the cold shoulder was probably confines of business relationships. Just like he was told, you can't cut that hair. They probably said, you can't talk about Bill Alexander. You know, there were probably yeah. the the lawyers and everyone who says like, oh, we don't we don't talk about these people because if you say something about a competitor and that claim cannot be substantiated, you know what I mean? Like you almost yeah. it's not even like, well, I don't want to I don't want to give free publicity to a competitor it becomes like you have to be really careful about what you say about a competitor or you expose yourself to potential lo lawsuit liabilities. Yeah, there's like brand uh, distinction stuff and trademarks and tr not wanting to confuse people with, wait, is Bob Ross Bill Alexander's stuff or is it Bob Ross stuff? You know, yeah. It's, yeah, you know. because if he says like, well, I learned everything I know from Bill Alexander, then it creates this like, well, is Bill Alexander endorsing Bob Ross and his products and his workshops? And, you know, like I could see where there could be difficult territory beyond just like, well, I didn't want to give him the publicity. I don't know. Did you ever uh, actually uh, receive a Bob Ross 
like paint set or anything like that or buy one? You know, it's funny. I don't remember ever buying one or receiving one. And yet I, I know I've had Bob Ross paint. Um, well, because so uh, when I started painting, um, I started painting with a set that I found in my basement at, at home as a kid. Like I was a teenager. And so it was like, well, it was probably my mom's or maybe my aunt's or someone else's or, you know what I mean? Like it yeah. was, it wasn't stuff that I, I bought or remember acquiring. It was just like in the house and it was, yeah. it was mostly, um, Windsor and Newton, which I, mm-hmm. I'm still a fan of their products if they yeah. ever want to send me them. Um, <laughs> but um, also I should probably for legal reasons say that I have no affiliation with them after our last conversation about Bob Ross. But um, I do, I do remember there, there were at least like one or two Bob Ross uh, tubes in there. They were fine paints, you know? Yeah. I got, I got a set in like 2000. I mean, uh, 1997 i think uh i was in middle school and i tried painting with it and it was my first introduction to oil and it didn't go so great i don't think i mean the the format wasn't really for me but i really appreciate him and his his personality and methods but yeah yeah and just to wrap up a little bit about his personality and i guess his methods uh, what made him famous was he was doing those paintings literally in half an hour he would start to finish just record and talk through making those paintings and he seemed so chill about it as he is saying like oh there are no mistakes just happy accidents and you know the happy little trees and all of that it's just such a positive wonderful tone and he talked about the reason he did that is because you know he wants to paint the world that he wants to live in and he you know he said if you want if you want misery if you want suffering if you want violence go watch the news but here it's my happy little world i want that positive tone and I personally love someone who's just earnestly putting out that positive vibe. And I think a lot of people responded to that. But the way that he was painting, he would basically cover it like in a wash of paints. So then he's painting into the wet paint. And it can be a very forgiving method in some ways because the paint is all still wet. You can wipe it away if you make a mistake because you're working so directly but at the same time, it's not really that forgiving working wet on wet. If you don't know what you're doing, everything turns into this muddy mess and it gets harder and harder to fix as um, a teenage Kyle definitely learned the hard way. Um, but he makes it look easy, you know? And there is there's some truth to it. Like there is some forgiving. There is a bit that oil can be forgiving working wet on wet. And his techniques really did work. And I think what a lot of people really responded to was the way that he would encourage you to realize that it's not about talent and something that you're born with, but that if you are willing to practice there are systems and structures and methods that you can learn 
to achieve something that looks absolutely beautiful. And he would put in a lot of time and effort thinking and planning out. Like he would make preparatory sketches and he would practice every stroke that he was going to paint before the actual taping. Like he wasn't making it up as he went along. In an interview, um, he said like he would lay awake in bed just mentally going through every brushstroke that he was going to make for the the following day's taping because of the fact that like as laid back as he seemed in 30 minutes you have to go from blank canvas to finished work i can't do that in 30 minutes i'm relatively quick as a painter and i am relatively you know accepting of all of my giant flaws, but I can't do start to finish in 30 minutes. Not unless I've done it several times. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it is magical, but it's like magic that's loaded with a a lot of work to make it that quick. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that, I mean, he was just so well-versed in uh, like the tricks and the methods, uh, they're very economical methods like where if you once you learn the feel it doesn't take a lot of time as long as you don't overwork it i think that's the thing you got to know how not to overwork it um and i am one to just beat things to death so i guess i'm not going to overwork this first segment we're going to take a short break and after this we're going to talk about one of his specific works mystic mountain This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Uh, Now, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about one of Bob Ross's paintings. So we have this landscape. This is, if you're watching The Joy of Painting, it's from season 20, episode one. As you're looking at this painting, what's jumping out at you? What are you noticing? Well, honestly, this one looks a little uh, like, uh, I don't know, uh, mushy to me compared to what I remember of his works mostly. Yeah. Um, like the, the yellow 
foreground uh, trees look a little uh, splotchy, but maybe it's the low res image. I'm not sure, but um, but the but the space created is cool, and the clouds are and mountains are always very striking. And uh, yeah, I think what's interesting looking at, across his body of work. This feels very typical of his format and his structure where it's like you so often see a mountain in the background, clouds around it. You see some middle ground that gets a little bit hazy. And then you see like this foreground of trees and stuff that were peeking through. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like linear perspective, but there is a depth to it. And I can see exactly how he's constructing that depth through the scale of the trees. And, and like the, the water gives us this pathway to go deeper into the landscape. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, they, they draw you in. Yeah. It's like a, you, you get pulled straight back towards the mountain. And uh, I mean, they're, immediate contemplative sort of work that um, I see the appeal. Cause like you don't have to come up with complex, you know, ideas or scenes, but it's a kind of painting that gives people the viewer space to, to just be with it, you know, just like nature is, you know? So I guess that's kind of this idea, but yeah. Yeah. And I'm also now that I'm looking at this a little bit more carefully i'm i'm noticing almost like a there's almost a symmetry to it that i'm finding very sort of soothing like as i look at the water it's roughly like an inversion of the mountain you know what i mean where like at the bottom where the water comes to a point it it's becoming white and then because of the reflection of the evergreen trees and stuff like that it it gets a little bit deeper greenish uh gray sort of near like near the horizon line you know um and i think there's something that i find satisfying about that and the stillness of the water i think is also contributing a little bit to that calm sort of soothing almost meditative quality to it and there's something then about the foreground that is driving me absolutely nuts. <laughs> are you are you seeing this too? Like it almost feels <clears throat> yeah. like it doesn't belong with the extreme like yellows and stuff like that. Well, it's a little redundant uh, because if you look at like the vertically middle there's a couple yellow trees but then they just keep on coming usually i don't know the the kinds of pieces i remember having sometimes you'd have a little bit of a green grassy close foreground Mm -hmm. or maybe like a waterfall or um um, or a different kind of tree interrupting but it looks like it's like very samey in a way that i think a lot of his pieces they had like one more variety in the foreground or a fence post or a, you know, uh, the, the edge of the water. We don't see, I mean, there's a brown spot at the very bottom and I can't tell if that's tree or water's edge, but it doesn't seem like water. It doesn't feel like water's edge to me. No. Um, 
The only place where I see the water's edge is right around the center where we've got that group of like three coniferous trees and we see ground and we see like a little bit of shoreline there. Um, but the extreme foreground, I, I feel like it's all leaves and, and bushes and grasses and stuff. And it's, yeah, I, I, I think it's too much of it. I think that's why it's bothering me. It also feels thicker textured. Yeah. You were talking about like the dynamic push and pull of the lights and darks. It's kind of pleasing. And um, yeah, it's just kind of, if you look at the ratio of like where light and dark kind of oscillate, like from sky downward um, that those yellow trees, they're kind of just swallowing all the space with very little range of change, you know? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you're right. It's all in it's all in roughly the same same range. It's interesting because the reason I pulled this this specific one is because like when I was looking at his body of work, I'm going to be honest, I became a little bit overwhelmed trying to pick out what would be a good Bob Ross painting cuz as I said there've been thousands and thousands of them. So I let Google decide for me. And so I I basically just like Googled best Bob Ross painting or something like that. And this is the one that came out at the top of the list. And I'm like, well, if this is the this is the one that people like, but it feels very meh to me, which I guess yeah. is the most common criticism of Bob Ross's work. Like from from the art world, there are a lot of people who appreciate Bob Ross for making art accessible and, you know, in in our homes and sort of demystifying the process of creation. And at the same time, there are a lot of people who have said it's formulaic, it's kind of kitschy, it's simplified, there's not much passion to it or whatever. I would argue in some ways the lack of passion is kind of the point I, I don't even want to say lack of passion but be, because there I think he was passionate about art it's just like it's a soothing gentle tone it's meant to be peaceful and tranquil and you know kind of like the impressionists it wasn't meant to be upsetting to people it was meant to be just soothing and satisfying yeah well, I think I think it's uh, w- with a lot of art, uh, art that knows what it is and doesn't try to be something it's not is art that I l- tend to like, I think. <laughs> and um, I think d- despite the formulaic method and, re- re- you know, the same kind of stuff over and over again, Bob Ross's pieces are exactly what he wants them to be, you know, like and I mean, so. It, it doesn't challenge uh, the viewer the way that a lot of modern art tries to, uh, but it is, you know, beauty, but beauty driven. And it's his personal story, I think, uh, and that people can connect with it, you know, that, that, I mean, nature is striking. Like when you're in a forest and you, or you, you see this in real life, I mean, you can just sit there and breathe it in. And he's just chasing that over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I would agree. So I guess to wrap it up, I always ask 
where does this piece belong? Is this one for the Louvre, a museum piece to cherish for the ages? Is this one for the lab, one for us to sort of deconstruct and study and learn from, whether we like it or not, kind of the eat your vegetables of the art world? Or is this one for the loo, the British for the bathroom? It's one that maybe has its time and place, but we don't need to dwell on that. Uh, so this is a hard question for me because uh, if I were to isolate the painting as if it were its own, just just uh, in a void apart from the person who created it in the context and uh, his body of work as far as how he, he innovated television, art, education, uh, I would be like uh i don't think this is museum and i mean maybe lab because the the like the mechanics of his methods are are very interesting because you can learn them like you i think it's a accessible uh like it's like getting a kit of like but but not as because uh, paint by numbers are, are are really fun for people to to get started with a process and i think his method is is more like like a lab driven kind of thing but but again it's more about the process than the work itself to me but the work itself is what motivates people to want to know the process so i guess i'd go i'm going with lab on this one but uh but i don't see this as like a oh my gosh this painting is like just moves me to tears <laughs> <laughs> um, and i wouldn't throw it in the garbage because People think, oh, well, you know, Bob Ross taught people how to do this method so anyone can do it. But the truth is, is that he did it in a way uh, that you could see his movements and you can see the little, the little graces of his mark making that are different than if you just learned it, you know, even if you've been practicing for a year and you're getting close, it's still a different, it's a complex process to synthesize all of those micro decisions over and over and over again. And he's still trying to one up himself, I'm sure till yeah. the very end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for those listeners who want to be able to sound, you know, pretentious as you talk about this stuff, the term we would use there is sprezzatura for that sort of studied carelessness or that clumsy grace where it's like, you know, you've, built up this skill and you just make it seem like it's it's free flowing and spontaneous and so so carefree. Um I I I struggled with my my own classification on this. I ultimately I ultimately decided that I was going to go with either the lab or the loo, depending on which way you went. I was going to try to find a way to disagree. Um I mostly mostly agree with what you're saying there, but I'm going to I'm actually going to say the loo not because I think it's like disposable and garbage, you know. Um yeah. I don't mean this as disrespect. I mean this because I am looking at it as a very sort of process driven. I feel like it's almost like therapeutic these kinds of landscapes that are so calm and peaceful and soothing and it's largely about the act of creation as almost a meditative thing and so i'm putting this not on par with like the the 
you know, sand mandalas or something like that, because it doesn't have quite that level of spiritual significance. But I am going to say, in some ways, I think there is something about this as being just a piece that's meant to be enjoyed for the moment, and then we can let it go. It's about the joy of creation, and and it doesn't need to be put up behind glass in a museum preserved for the ages. It's something to enjoy for the afternoon. Like going on a hike. You enjoy it for the moment, you take it in, and you move on. And the memory of it may stick with you, but, you know, you don't abandon your home to stay on that mountainside. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... It's it's a, it's like a balance, I'd say, of like the fact that the artist, you know, expresses himself in the work, but I feel like the nature aspect of it is actually heavier than the Bob aspect, right? Like, and but I mean, that's what makes it universal, because we all experience nature, and um, and so it's like, yeah, it do, it doesn't feel as so like, oh wow. I I've never considered this before. <laughs> it's just kind of like yeah. wow, I, this is familiar to me. Like yeah, I, I've 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 seen this kind of beautiful thing before, and I I just love beautiful things. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. It's enjoyable. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> and then you know, we can go on to sleep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I will. To be honest, I was thinking the uh, Lou. Um, but I guess I was feeling like, oh, I can't just be ruthless. I was scared to be mean. So, but I don't think it's necessarily do, mean yeah. to say that something <laughs> can be, you know, it's got its time and its place and it doesn't need to be preserved forever. I mean, if you preserve everything, then you're just a hoarder, you know? Like, you have to say that some stuff is elevated and stuff, some stuff's enjoyed for a moment. And that's not to say that the momentary pleasures are any lesser. In in some ways, the things that we enjoy for the moment, I'd say, are more significant because that's really the stuff of life. That's the day-to-day. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I tend to be a hoarder, though. So, <laughs> no. Yeah, same I here. Keep every, I keep everything. No, um, no but that that's true. I think so. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Well, thank you once again, Tom Des Longchamp. It has been such a pleasure getting to know you and your art and then getting to talk to you about the art that you love as well. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, thanks for having me and uh, thanks for sharing about my process. Oh, and one fun thing. Guess what? I found uh, some brushes in a free pile last year. And I just noticed it on Halloween. I was Bob Ross for Halloween this year. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed that one of the brushes from that free pile is a Bill Alexander brush. It's got his <laughs> name on it. That is and, too perfect. And I put duct tape on it to make it not reflect light, you know, like, like Bob Ross does. <laughs> yeah. But it was a Bill Alexander brush, which I thought was just layered. It's a perfect costume, you know, like. I'm using the original OG painter guy stuff. (laughs) I love that. Well, (laughs) thank you so much once again. Uh, No problem.
This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.